Welcome to the Gestalt IT Rundown for today, Wednesday, August the 16th. My name is Tom Hollingsworth, and I have a very important question for each and every one of you. What vegetable loves roller coasters? That would be Cellar Because today is National Tell-A-Joke Day. It didn't say it had to be a good one. And National Roller Coaster Day. And joining me is a fan of celery and roller coasters, Mr. Stephen Foskett. Stephen, welcome to the show. Also a fan of jokes. Have I ever told you the um, the polar bear joke? I don't think so. Um, it probably would take an entire episode of the rundown. But how about this? If you are listening to the rundown, next time you see me, ask me to tell you the polar bear joke. Well, because we don't want to take up the whole episode with jokes, we want to get right to the news. We're going to go ahead and dive in because we've got a lot of stories that we want to bring to you today. Uh, the first one comes to our to us through our friends at NVIDIA. Uh, they've unveiled a new iteration of Grace Hopper, their CPU and GPU combo. The GH200 features an updated GPU component along with HBM3E-based memory. That's pretty significant in its own right. However, there is a surprise lurking inside. Well, actually, there's not because Intel and AMD have been left out of the GH200 in favor of NVIDIA focusing on their own ARM CPU platform. Stephen, is this a sign for the industry? Well, you know, it. it I, I think it kind of is. Um, hello, wake up, uh, ding dong, something's happening. Um, yeah, in, in NVIDIA's uh, Grace Hopper, if if you don't know, is is basically a um, a really nice pre-built combo of NVIDIA's latest um, GPUs for AI processing, as well as uh, CPU and high bandwidth memory. Um, and, and it's designed for basically um, scale out distributed architectures. So this is not a GPU that you put in your, in your computer. This is a pre-built solution that and combines CPU and GPU and memory and, and is designed so that all of these units can work together in sort of a seamless fabric. It is very, very cool. Now, what's interesting about it is that um, Intel and AMD, um, well, they were expected uh, to be part of this and they've been part of the NVIDIA ecosystem for a long time. Well, they're not not part of the NVIDIA ecosystem, of course. NVIDIA loves them. Uh, NVIDIA does a ton of work with Intel and AMD. And there are a lot of uh, DGX and HGX systems and all that that use uh, these uh, NVIDIA uh, GPUs with uh, Intel and AMD processors. But NVIDIA kind of signaled something interesting a few years back when they introduced their own ARM chip. Well, guess what? That ARM chip called Grace, uh, which is a 72-core ARM chip, um, has been paired with the latest uh, GPU in the next uh, generation Grace Hopper. And, well, uh, ain't no Intel inside. I think that that's an interesting signal because on the one hand, it shows that NVIDIA is, as expected, going in their own direction uh, with their own devices. But there's another thing happening here, and that's that both Intel and AMD have been I don't know, a little bit a little bit late to the party with um, these new CPUs. And um, the important aspect is that uh, you know it, it's the it's all about the PCIe. And um, if AMD didn't have a good uh, CPU platform to support their GPUs, well, they made their own. Um, unfortunately, I think for, for Intel and AMD, once the cat's out of the bag on this, assuming that this thing works well, so it combines two of these Grace 72 core CPUs to get 144 ARM cores in there, 
assuming this works well and assuming that the uh, the result is a high performance system, which we all expect it to be. I mean, it's got HBM 3E. It's got a ton of memory. It's got a ton of bandwidth. I mean, this thing is killer. Um, AMD might start asking themselves um, or Intel. <laughs> NVIDIA, sorry about that, NVIDIA might start asking themselves, uh, what do we need AMD and Intel for anyway? And uh, well, that would be a big news in the industry, wouldn't it? So we'll see what happens. But uh, for now, the biggest, baddest, latest, greatest Grace Hopper uh, doesn't have Intel or AMD inside. Last week uh, was Black Hat Conference, which means a lot of security scares uh, and a lot of security vulnerabilities announced. We can't cover all of them, but one of the biggest was codenamed Downfall, and it affects uh, the latest generations of Intel CPUs as well as many generations before that. In, in essence, Downfall can use CPU instructions to fetch data from protected CPU registers, even encrypted ones that shouldn't be read by a particular software program. Uh, Daniel Magami disclosed the bug to Intel about a year ago, and fixes are available for systems now. Uh, systems, plural, because this bug affects processors all the way back to the sixth generation uh, sold in 2015. It doesn't seem to affect Alder Lake and Raptor Lake, which are the newest ones, likely due to the disclosure last year, and Intel probably addressed that before releasing them. But uh, the current fix does re uh, reduce fetch performance by up to 50%, according to Intel. And so some people are even thinking of opting out of the fix. What do you think of this, Tom? Is this the sequel to the famous meltdown? I think it is because it looks like it's, it's a little bit more, I don't know, advanced when you think about it. Um, meltdown was essentially trying to like do side channel attacks by jumping in and, and trying to read things that are in a pipeline beside you. Um, downfall looks like it's able to, to fetch data from, uh, other registers. Like, I don't know the ones that Intel has been talking about with SGX, um, and they can pull encrypted data out of there. Well, it's not encrypted when it's in the register. It's only encrypted when I try to look at it. So this attack allows them to get around that. Um, that's bad news. Um, anybody who wants to look at, you know, what you can do with, you know, arbitrary code execution, uh, just, you know, what if I could do arbitrary code read? Um, what if I could hop onto a cloud platform and read all the data that's in those registers? It may not make sense when I look at it, but to me, it's like reassembling those strips of shredded paper in uh, any crime procedural. Uh, eventually, I'm going to get enough of them together where I can figure some things out. Um, and, and of course, just like Meltdown, you, there's a patch. And if you apply it, you, you cut the performance of the CPU in half. Um, funny enough, this does not affect, as we mentioned, uh, the latest generation Alder Lake and Raptor Lake are completely immune from it, at least according to Intel. I'm sure if we do testing, we'll find out if that's the truth or not. And again, they, they knew about this a year ago, so they've probably been fixing that. Um, the other thing that's interesting is that it doesn't affect anything prior to 2015, and it doesn't affect Atom processors. So anything that's running in a low-powered environment is completely immune. Um, anything, you know, old, old stuff... Uh, I don't know if you're still running a computer from 2014. If you are, congratulations. Um, but I think that ultimately what this is going to mean is, is that people literally have to take that chance, just like they did with Meltdown. Do I run protected with slower performance or do I open this puppy up and take the chance? Um, Intel is specifically saying that you can apply the patch and then turn on a, uh, a performance mode, which effectively disables the thing that's preventing people from being able to read that. Um, when they ask the researcher, he's like, yeah, I don't recommend doing that. Um, I don't know, because uh, like Meltdown was a big deal when it came out, but I never really saw any fallout 
from meltdown. Like, like we, we saw that it was possible to do these things, but I think that the, the payloads had to be specially crafted in such a way as to be, I don't know, difficult to weaponize at small scale. And I think that downfall is going to be kind of the same way since Intel's already aware of it and they're already working on, um, you know, mitigations for it. I think that this is going to have to be something that is an extremely targeted attack, that it is going to require a massive amount of resources, um, which should to people at home say nation state attackers. And it's, it's not going to be something, realistically speaking, that you are going to get infected with. You might be caught in a net. But I don't think that this is this is designed to steal secrets from the State Department. This is not designed to grab your bank account number, because quite honestly, there's a whole lot of easier ways to do that. But again, it's all going to come down to how do we address that? And I think Intel's done the right thing. They've been working on this, the solution. They allowed the researcher to release the the notes on it, and they're they're basically working around it. So stay tuned. Um, maybe this will end up being uh, less of a meltdown than we had expected. Um, Stephen AI chipmaker Grok is looking to Samsung's foundry for the next generation of their Tensor processors. Uh, the company is going to use Samsung's advanced SF4X 4 nanometer process node to improve performance, reduce power consumption for all of their future chips. Now, we know that Moore's Law is finally starting to slow down, but there's still tremendous value in moving all of these things to new process nodes as we hear all across the board. And that means that competition in the foundry space is really starting to heat up. So does this mean that we should really be looking beyond TSMC and Intel into some of these other foundry companies? Yeah, there's two aspects to this story that I think are very, very important. Um, first, let's talk about Grok. So this is a company that is developing primarily an inferencing chip. So um, if, if you're not aware, um, AI has, uh, well, building a machine learning based um, uh, solution has many different aspects. And a lot of the time when we talk about performance, especially chip and processing performance, what we're referring to is the training aspect of it, which takes tons and tons of CPU. As it sounds, this is training. This is, you know, basically sending your AI to college to learn all the things on the internet or whatever. Um, inferencing is the other um, face of it. That's basically going to work afterward and doing your job. That's what Grok specializes in. They make processors that accelerate inferencing. These things are used all over the place. And, and, and basically, although training gets all the attention, inferencing is where the action is because inferencing is basically doing the thing. So if people are talking about AI-based applications, that's what Grok is trying to accelerate. Their next generation platform, um, which is a, uh, you know, the Grok chip, um, is going to be moving to this advanced process node. Um, it's also, of course, going to have lots of other improvements in it. And uh, Grok is saying that this thing, get this, is three times faster sort of um, on its own and also three times less power, which basically means you're getting nine times as much performance per watt as previously. Now, performance per watt matters for training chips and data center chips and cloud chips, of course, because of course they have massive power and cooling budgets, but it's much more important on inferencing side because inferencing can happen all over the place, everywhere from cloud and data center, all the way to the edge. And even devices uh, now have uh, inferencing capabilities. Well, Grok isn't probably going to be in your next cell phone, but they will be all over the place, especially in, in areas like Edge. 
And that's where performance per watt really, really matters. And so this is a, a big step forward for them. Now, there's another part of this story. Of course, there's the, 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 the Samsung aspect. So Samsung is sort of the unsung hero in uh, chip making. Everybody talks about TSMC. Some people talk about Intel, but nobody wants to, you know, it's Bruno over here. We don't talk about Samsung. Well, Samsung's right there. They're making a lot of investments. They're trying to uh, keep up with the others as well, just like Intel is, frankly. And Samsung's been doing a pretty good job. Another thing that's happening in the chip market, as we've talked about on the rundown, is this move to manufacturing in places that are not called China for reasons of global politics. And Samsung is investing heavily in a U.S. fab, and that's where this Grok chip will be made. If you go to grok.com, you will see that one of their big pitches is USA-based supply chain. That's very important for a lot of customers, especially customers who are rolling out AI chips, because they're very concerned about international, um, well, let's just say China, uh, messing around with the chips, which, you know, isn't a thing that we've seen happen, but I guess they're worried about that. Also, there's uh, sort of uh, political and um, jobs related uh, concerns that all lead to companies wanting to have uh, supply chains in various places. By moving to a US-based supply chain, by moving to a new process node, Grok is gonna be bringing a lot of differentiators to this chip. I really think they're heading in the right direction. Um, and I definitely expect them to uh, basically make hay about both of these aspects going forward. Oracle, uh, SUSE, uh, and the sponsor of Rocky Linux are teaming up. After the recent drama from the Red Hat licensing changes, the new group has styled themselves as the Open Enterprise Linux Association, or Open ELA. Wait, I thought ELA was end user license. No, that's EULA. The group has come together under the premise of no passwords and no barriers, according to the statement on the homepage. It's almost like that's directed at someone. Who could it be? The goal is to establish source code and distribution of enterprise Linux distributions that are compatible with Red Hat Enterprise Linux, or RHEL, uh, with bug for code matching. Tom, what's going on uh, now that uh, the stars, as they were, are aligning against Red Hat? You'll have to excuse me for a second, Stephen. I need to step on this tea sweetened with the tears of Linux developers. Oh, yes, it tastes so delicious. Um, <laughs> what do we always say? If Oracle's against you, you've done screwed up. And I kid because, you know, I got to poke at Larry Ellison. But here's the thing. Um, Oracle is one of the biggest customers of Red Hat Enterprise Linux because they use it in their cloud. SUSE has been a competitor to Enterprise Linux for a RHEL for a very long time, and they are the other Enterprise Linux distribution. And CIQ, which is the sponsor of Rocky Linux, they're not the, uh, the, the distributor of it. They just basically pay the bills, um, have all gotten together and said, what if we could create our own Linux, but with Blackjack uh, and other things? Um, no, effectively what they're trying to do is they're trying to say, we're going to take the code because we can, because Rocky figured out how to do that. And we're going to create a bug for bug enterprise Linux distribution. And we're going to offer it to people and we're going to make it open and free. And we're not going to have any stupid licensing agreements. We're not going to do any kind of trickery. Um, effectively, we're doing what CentOS did back in the day with Red Hat Enterprise Linux. And what Rocky did when CentOS went away is we are giving you an alternative avenue. 
And just like everybody's favorite Apple One builders, you know, if you have the skill set to do this yourself and roll your own, go for it. Um, I think that one of the reasons why this is gaining steam is that when you look at all of the other things that were kind of um, re-rolling Red Hat Enterprise Linux source code to do their own things, they've all gone really dark since this big announcement. And a lot of people are starting to kind of lose faith in them. And I think that with having this big splash announcement from big companies, they're going to try to basically kind of steer that ship. You know, effectively, depending on how deep you get into the Linux ecosystem, this is effectively them trying to fork it. But it's more like a, you know, like a salad fork versus a dinner fork. They're not like massively different forks. Uh, they're just doing something slightly different. And the reason for that is because in order for this to really work, you have to have a bug for bug, one-to-one -one match for everything that's in Red Hat Enterprise Linux. Because this is not as simple as doing uname A and getting the kernel name and the distro name and just running from there. This is, you have to match everything, otherwise you're going to lose support. Because this is not, you know, emerging Gen 2 or installing Slackware. This is money-making stuff. So it has to work and it has to match. And I think what you're going to see is this weird kind of counterplay that's going to be going on. Is that Red Hat's going to do some things and then OpenELA is going to kind of match them so that they can stay consistent. I think you're going to see Oracle really starting to shift away from using RHEL in their, in their deployments and probably adopting this new version of OpenELA. And if that is the case, what you're going to start seeing is a massive drop-off in the use of RHEL. And that could force IBM and Red Hat to come to the table to have a discussion about this to figure out where they're going to go from here. Because when you're dealing with something where you're already kind of in a tenuous arena to make money, seeing your user base drop off significantly is a huge signal to the investors that you're about to get left in the dust. And my only hope, of course, is that Oracle and SUSE are good stewards of the thing that they have done and don't decide to pull a red hat on it in a couple of years when they have a significant user base. So mark my words, Larry, don't do the dumb thing, do the right thing. Stephen, as we mentioned back in April, China has been cracking down on a lot of mergers that involve U.S. companies. And now the State Administration for Market Regulation, also known as SAMR, has squashed Intel's proposed acquisition of Tower Semiconductor. We covered that in February of last year. Intel will hand a $353 million payment to Tower on an acquisition that was reported to be over $5 billion. The deal faced regulatory challenges from the beginning, but the decision to appoint a new head of foundry efforts likely made this whole situation worse. Tower's semiconductor expertise will have, will, would have strengthened Intel's uh, foundry efforts quite a bit. So would you consider this to be a major setback for Intel? Yeah, it's interesting. Um, so Tower wasn't going to bring... Um, you know, the, I don't know, some kind of advanced process node to Intel or something, Tower was going to bring expertise, especially market expertise, but also just sort of like doing the thing expertise to Intel's um, fab uh, business. Essentially, Tower is, uh, so Tower is an Israeli company that's been around for a long time. They do a great job and they're very well liked in the industry for, as a partner for basically producing uh, semiconductors on contract, which is what Intel's trying to do. So it made sense for Intel to be buying them. On, uh, on the other hand, uh, Intel has been trying to get into that market themselves and has spent a lot of time. And as we mentioned, uh, you know, they've, they've really invested in the people side of that as well to try to get themselves into that space. In fact, another story we didn't cover today is that Synopsys is working with Intel to add IP 
for um, IDM customers. So all of these things kind of um, are, are working sort of at odds with each other. And then you add to that the problem of uh, China's uh, crackdown on regulatory approval for, uh, for mergers, which is, I think, widely seen as an effort to, um, I don't know, fight back against a lot of the restrictions that there have been placed uh, from the West on importing advanced technologies to China. And, well, you'd get bad news for Intel. Um, essentially, this was not squashed by Samer uh, refusing uh, the license or saying, no, you can't do the acquisition. It was simply squashed by them running out the clock. The clock ran out yesterday, I'm pretty sure. And um, Intel basically had to complete the acquisition according to their agreement. Uh, I think that Tower was kind of like, uh, hello, you know, you're going to buy us or not going to buy us? Well, not going to buy you. Uh, basically, it didn't get proved in time. Uh, apparently, Pat Gelsinger even went so far as to fly to China to meet with the regulators and beg, not beg, uh, urge them to uh, approve this. Didn't happen. Um, I definitely think that the reason it didn't happen was because of the uh, international intrigue involved and um, clock ran out. So it's not going to happen. Uh, I don't think this is really going to affect Intel all that much. Uh, they're definitely going to be investing heavily into this strategy still. They're definitely going to be hiring people. I don't think it's going to affect Tower that much. Honestly, Tower's fine. Um, and, you know, I, I think overall it's, it's not a huge deal. And, you know, Intel can afford the money, sort of. Um, it's it's more that it shows the geopolitical aspect of all these things that we talk about here on the rundown. Tech Field Day favorites Alkira and iTential have announced a partnership to help automate multi-cloud networking. Alkira has been long focused on providing networking solutions for multi-cloud organizations by reducing complexity of implementation. iTential has also been a longstanding proponent of low-code networking automation to reduce complexity in deployment. Sounds like a perfect match, doesn't it? The joint integration is aimed specifically at onboarding, security, and inter-region connectivity. And I got to say, I was very excited to see these two, uh, as you said, uh, tech field day favorites coming together. I was too. And this is one of those things that you may not have thought about it at first, but as soon as you see the press release that came out from our friends, you're like, yeah, that makes all the sense in the world. It's like when two of your friends have been like, they, they would be great together and they finally decide to start dating and you're like, yes, yes, please. Um, this is the thing. Itential has always done a really great job of creating that low code automation under the hood, but they needed a way to kind of vault themselves into the cloud because when you get into that realm, you're not playing against your competitors. You're competing against the systems that Amazon and Microsoft and Google want you to use. And they're clunky, but they're designed to be used with that platform. So what you need to do is you need to find a friend. And in this case, Alkira is that friend because Alkira has been really, really focused on the multi-cloud networking aspect of trying to tie all these various clouds together. What they've needed is help automating that stuff on the back end. Do you see the chocolate? You see the peanut butter? Hopefully you see the Reese's peanut butter cup that's being created here. And it is going to be a delicious thing. They, it's a partnership. They are not acquiring each other. And I think that that's actually for the best because it gives Alkira the flexibility to continue to try to integrate some of the pieces from the various clouds in there as an alternative. You know, um, you never want to hear the L word, lock in. But, you know, this allows you to say, if you don't like the way that we're doing it here, you can absolutely work on their stuff with uh, our friends over at iTential. Likewise, iTential still has the capability to kind of be a provider to a bunch of different platforms. They had had previous um, integrations with other 
uh, cloud networking platforms, not as deep as the one that they have with Alkira. And when I say that, I'm, I'm not even kidding. Like, you know, you always wonder, well, if I have a problem with this integration and I call my friends at Itential, are they just going to tell me to go call the Alkira people and vice versa? No, they're actually going to work together to fix any problems that you might have. To me, that speaks to kind of a, a deeper level of understanding between the two companies because it allows them to do kind of this cross sales, um, you know, valuation thing. So I expect that this is going to cause a lot of um, additional uh you know, value, uh, expertise to be unlocked in these kinds of deployments. And I think it's actually going to be something great for both companies. I can't wait to hear about how it's going and how people are adopting it. And I'm sure that they'll be coming back to a field day event very soon to tell us all about it. Steven, we had a story we wanted to take a closer look at this week because uh, I don't know about you, but I love licensing drama. And uh, last week, HashiCorp created a little bit of a stir because their CTO, Armand Dadgar, announced that HashiCorp is going to be changing licensing models because they've adopted the Business Source License, which is abbreviated BSL, and has been popularized by MariaDB and Couchpace. Under the BSL, HashiCorp code will remain freely available and licensed for non-production use. You may be granted a license for production use, provided you don't directly compete with HashiCorp. If you do, you're going to need to buy a commercial license from HashiCorp. Now, of course, as all licensing changes do, this has generated just a little bit of discussion and speculation in the community about how prevalent projects like Terraform are now going to have to is, does this mean I'm not going to be able to do stuff? Does this mean that I'm going to have to get a different license if I'm using Terraform code in my project? Um, there's a lot of stuff that's going on here. Um, Steven, I have to ask, honestly, is this a big gaffe by HashiCorp? Or is this just an attempt by some of the competing companies out there to paint them as the villains? Yeah, I don't think it's the competing companies. I think it's the end users and the community that are uh, pretty angry about this. And I can see their point. I mean, I uh, I can kind of see both sides of this thing. And honestly, this is a replay, almost a play-for-play -play replay of uh, what happened with MariaDB and what happened with Couchbase. And... Um, and, and just like those situations, there's a lot of anger and frustration in the community because essentially, um, you know, I'm not a lawyer and uh, I recommend that you consult a lawyer before uh, taking any, making any decisions about how you are and are not allowed to use this software. And that's the problem. It's not an open source, open source license in the way that many in the open source community are familiar. Um, it's it's a different. It's a very different license. In fact, it's specifically according to FAQs from companies like MariaDB, it does not meet the definition of open source. I mean, it says that right there in their in their FAQ, uh, and and they're the ones that originated or because it Couchbase anyway. Um, you know, MariaDB, their, their FAQ says it does not meet the definition of open source. That's it right there, right? That's the whole ballgame. Is, is, is um, uh, Terraform no longer open source? According to the originator of the license, yeah, it's no longer open source. And that's frustrated a lot of people. Now, there's more nuance here, of course, because the source is still available. Um, they are still hoping to work with the community. 
they're still the same great people that you've loved all these years. I mean, that's the thing. You know, we we like the couch the 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 the, the court people. We like the couch base people. We like the Maria DB people. They're good people. They're doing things right. Um, it's a good community. But uh, you know, I think that a lot of people are really kind of offended by this. That you would take all of our effort. That you would uh, work with the community and work with the community, and then. When you see that it's profitable, you kind of snatch away some of the rights and say, eh, you can use it, but not for commercial purposes unless you talk to us and pay for a license and things like that. I think that's the real core of this. I mean, Tom, do you see the nuance there? I, I do. And and I will say that to HashiCorp's credit, they created a cutout in their licensing structure that says after a specific change date, four years in the future, that version of code does become completely free and open source. Like we're, we're going back to the way that things used to be. Now, obviously it's four years out of date. It's like my car. It's four years out of date. I don't care. Um, but here's, here's the nuance to me that I think is important. HashiCorp had options. They could have closed the source on Terraform. That's pretty much the, the ultimate FU to the entire community of, I need to make money off of this. And I'm tired of people trying to copy my source code and, and create a competitor called Ferratorm or whatever. They could have closed the source. They still have open source ideas at heart. They, they really do want the community to help improve this code. They want people to adopt it. They want people to incorporate it. All they're saying is, if you're going to do this to try to make money and you're going to do it in a way that directly competes with something that we're doing, we want to know about it and we want at least basically to have the right of first refusal. I understand that because what if the shoe was on the other foot? What if you had contributed code to an open source project that somebody then went and forked and tried to make money off of it? Would you be mad about that? You're damn right you would. You would at least want acknowledgement or depending on if you are not the ultimate white knight of the open source community, you'd want to cut of that money. And what they're trying to do in effect is create kind of a brand protection thing. I mean, everyone knows HashiCorp. Everyone uses HashiCorp stuff. So I can't disagree with their decision to do this because ultimately it has paid off for MariaDB. It has paid off for Couchbase. I don't think people are going to just race out and fork Terraform tomorrow and make it free and open source and be able to keep up with the value that HashiCorp is adding to it. I get it. Having your CTO come out just kind of randomly and be like, hey, guess what, guys? We're changing the license was probably not the best way to make this announcement. But we've seen some pretty ham-handed announcements in the past, and this doesn't even rank in the top 10, to be quite fair about it. Amazon probably owns like four of those top spots on some of the crazy stuff that they've pulled trying to fork other databases and things like that. I think that they're trying to stay true to who they are while still facing the reality of what it means to run a business today. Because remember, you on the one side of this, you've got the zealots who are like, it must be free forever. It must be open source forever. There can be no restrictions on it. And on the other side is a bunch of people who wear expensive ties going, I don't care. This is not, you know, communism. We need money. We need to make money. We need to do money. We need to do the thing. Because if you don't give us any money, we're not going to invest in you anymore. And so HashiCorp is effectively caught in the middle of these two masters. You know, the, for lack of a better term, the Stallmans on one side, the, the crazy, you know, bearded people who are like, you know, power to the people. And these people on over here are like money from the people. And 
how do you balance that and still stay in business as one of the leading providers of these softwares? I don't know the answer. I think HashiCorp's trying this answer, and I hope it works out for them. Point of order on your whole discussion there, though, Tom. Um, I have to point out that there are lots of people in the community who absolutely empathize with what you just said, except they're the people that developed things and gave it to Terraform. And then HashiCorp is the company that's snatching it away from them and making money on it. In other words, people in the community that have contributed to this as an open source project and have staked their, their livelihoods on the Terraform ecosystem, who have contributed to the project, who've contributed to the ecosystem, who contributed all sorts of things, and then have HashiCorp be like, hey, that's mine right there, and take it away from them and make money off of it. I don't think people don't want HashiCorp to make money. In fact, I, I kind of, yeah, there's the the Stallmans out there who are just like, you know, anything not open source sucks and, and I'm going to be mad about this. But there's also a lot of people, I think, in the community who are justifiably upset that they see this as HashiCorp taking their work and privatizing it in a way to make money off of it. It's funny, I, I talk to those people and I don't think they object to HashiCorp making money. Far from it. I think that they're perfectly happy for HashiCorp to make money. I think what they object to is the fact that they are, they've been contributing to this ecosystem for a long time and that contribution has not been reflected in this kind of going private kind of aspect. There's another thing that I wanna bring up here too, and that is the question of end users of this software. Now, it's a little confusing. As I said, I'm, I'm, I looked through all these FAQs. I read a lot of documentation. The confusing thing is, are you who is not trying to make a competing product, but just trying to use this in a product, are you allowed to use it to make money? In other words, if I build a for-profit website with MariaDB or Couchbase as the back end, or if I'm using Terraform to provision uh, systems in my for-pay cloud service provider, heck, in my regular old boring company data center, am I violating the license? Do I need a license from HashiCorp? And it's not entirely clear. Now, I know that what they were trying to do here is they were trying to go after basically the, the same thing that Red Hat got mad about, the same thing that everybody in the open source community gets mad about, which is, hey, I made this free and open and then somebody did the exact same thing with it and is taking all my work and making money off of it. I'm sure that's frustrating, but that's kind of what goes with open source. And, and so I can get that. I'm gonna set that aside. So basically somebody coming up with, um, um, yeah, Ferratorm or something that is basically just Terraform in a different name that they're making a lot of money on. And maybe that's kind of stinky. It's allowed under the open source license, but it's not cool. But what about somebody who's just using this software? Do they need a license? Do they need to call up HashiCorp? Are they going to have um, Oracle style license police coming and, and auditing them and saying, hey, you used, you used Terraform over there. You owe us money and penalties. You know, is that going to happen? And I'm not entirely sure. I would hope that it doesn't happen. And, and part of the reason why it comes back to that whole community aspect of things that HashiCorp has always been friendly to the community. Yes, I, I understand there's a lot of people who are rankled that, you know, you're, you're, you're building a business off of my hard work. I would argue that most businesses build 
their business off the back of the hard work of other people. The only difference is, is that they do cut you a paycheck at the end of the day. But from a mechanical perspective, there's not a whole lot of difference. But I think that the way to fix this is to be very clear in what this involves. And yeah, you're right. The, the FAQs that are up right now are not explicit on that because maybe honestly maybe HashiCorp hasn't thought about that or maybe they didn't think it was a big enough issue that they had to bring it up maybe to them it's like oh yeah you can use terraform to build the thing that you're selling as long as you don't try to build terraform into it and i think that as the the days and weeks kind of go on with this big announcement because this only came out last week they're going to have to go back and clarify all of that stuff which they rightfully should so that there's no gray area in it now i'm not going to lie they are going to make people mad you know, someone's going to come up with the the perfect corner case of, well, what if I do this and that and this and that? And is that covered? And they're just going to be like, no. And, and then that person's going to be, you know, stomping off mad. But in the vast majority of cases, I think they're probably going to come down on the side of using our free and open source BSL licensed software in your organization to do things, but not trying to sell competition against us is probably going to be allowed. Um, I, I know how other companies would come down on top of that. And we've seen how their licenses um, are written to uh, completely <laughs> yeah, cover those areas. But again, this is going to be a developing story. Um, I, and I think that ultimately it's the goal of the community to provide their feedback on how this should run. There's still a lot of room for negotiation in here. There's still a lot of ways for you to make your feelings known to the company and tell them we want these specific use cases to be covered in a way that allows us to continue to do our livelihood. Because if you never ask, the answer will always be no. So now is the time to ask, not a year from now when this is entrenched and all of the things have been thoroughly tested. And you go, well, wait a minute. I just thought about this. Put your thinking caps on and think about it now. One more point that I'll make on that, by the way. So we're, we're kind of talking about, like I said, the end user aspect of this. I do want to point out that in the blog post that HashiCorp posted, it specifically says end users can continue to copy, modify, and redistribute the code for all com non-commercial and commercial use, except where providing a competitive offering to HashiCorp. So that answers my question from HashiCorp's perspective. My concern is that that's not what the BSL says. <laughs> the BSL says no such thing. This is clearly uh, defensible. I mean, I think if you if you got if the license police came to you and Hashi, you know, and 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 you pointed to this blog post and were like, "Hey, HashiCorp said we could do this." I think you'd be okay. Again, I'm not a lawyer, but I think that this would count as an exception. Um, but um, generally, the BSL is not all that specific about whether you can have other, whether end users can can make money off the product. Um, again, that being said, there's a lot of end user products that use MariaDB and that use Couchbase. And as far as I know, the license police aren't coming after them. But I think that maybe we need a BSL too that is making that kind of thing explicit. Uh, explicit. I also think that HashiCorp really needs to do a lot more communication on this I think they need to do um, basically embrace the community and help the community kind of understand what's going on here and, and help reassure them that all of their time and work and effort isn't going to waste. Because frankly, people love HashiCorp products. People love HashiCorp. They want to be part of this ecosystem. I mean, honestly, the products are really great. So 
let's all work together to try to make it something that everybody can be happy with instead of, I don't know, all this animosity. And one way to address that is basically by kind of tackling these cases explicitly and basically making it clear what HashiCorp is and isn't trying to do. And one more thing, I guarantee that there's going to be some forks of all the HashiCorp products out there, uh, competing forks, uh, pre-license change. And that's going to be interesting to watch. I'll guarantee you something else, Stephen. No matter what happens, we will definitely be covering it here on The Rundown because this is one of those things that we want to make sure the community is aware of. Just like we want to make sure the community is aware of some of the cool stuff that we have coming up. Uh, next week, as a matter of fact, Stephen, where are you going to be next week? Uh, hey, Tom, where are you going to be next week? Uh, both of be. us are going to be in Las Vegas at uh, VMware Explore. We're very excited to be uh, returning to the, the second ever VMware Explore um, for uh, Tech Field Day Extra. And um, we will be uh, here having presentations from VMware's Networking and Security Division. Uh, we're also very excited to have AMD presenting to the crew. We'll also be doing some technical interviews on site um, with companies like Infinidat, Zerto, Commvault, and more. If you'd like to get in on that, it's still there's still time, so let us know. Uh, check that out uh, the week of August 21st. Um, we'll be publishing a lot of stuff on uh, all of our usual channels, podcasts, and videos, and Tech Field Day, and all that good stuff. We're also going to be at SNEA's Storage Developer Conference the week of September 18th. Um, check out the Tech Field Day website for more on that. That's going to be Storage Field Day 26. We're also going to be doing um, yeah, podcasts and the news rundown live on site, all that good stuff that we like to do. And um, finally, I want to give a heads up. We're going to be returning to Edge as a topic as well. We've got Edge Field Day 2 coming up in October. So stick with Tech Field Day for more information on that. And of course, you can stick with the Gestalt IT Rundown every Wednesday around 1230 Eastern Time when we publish these great episodes on our website at gestaltit.com, on our YouTube channel, uh, Gestalt IT Video, and also your favorite podcast application of choice if you'd like to listen to us. Um, I often listen to the episodes that Stephen does with another co-host just to make sure I'm up on the news. Um, but we will be publishing uh, Wednesday, whether we're on site, whether we're in the studio, you name it. We always have great news that we want to bring you uh, focused on enterprise technology because that's the, the thing that makes the world go round. Uh, we'll be back next week with another great episode on site from Las Vegas and VMware Explore. Until then, take care of yourselves. Stay out of the heat. Uh, maybe have yourself a mojito or a daiquiri since it's National Rum Day. But don't do that and then go on a roller coaster because the results won't end well. But we'll be back next week with more great stuff. Until then, take care of yourselves. We'll see you soon.